This is the East Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Ferox Madback, University of Florida, Jacksonville. Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Carrie Valdez from Covenant Hospital in Saginaw, Michigan. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Hello and welcome to the East TraumaCast series. I'm your moderator, Faraz Madbeck. I'm an assistant professor of surgery at the University of Florida in Jacksonville, alongside Dr. Carrie Valdez, who is co-moderating today. Dr. Valdez is an acute care surgeon at Covenant Healthcare in Saginaw, Michigan. Thanks for joining us, Carrie. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Carrie, every night I'm on, it seems like I was asked to evaluate one or two patients who have acute anorectal disease that range from you know, mundane, more benign conditions that tend to be uh, intensely painful and uncomfortable, uh, all the way up to conditions that have life-threatening implications. So certainly ubiquitous diseases that often require urgent intervention, uh, like a lot of conditions in acute care surgery. So uh, we're going to discuss acute anorectal emergencies for the acute care surgeon. We have the uh, distinct privilege and fortune to have Dr. Scott Steele join us today for this episode. Dr. Steele is Professor and Chairman of the Department of Colorectal Surgery at the Cleveland Clinic, Cleveland, Ohio. Previously, he was an active duty service member in the United States Army from 1998 to 2015, which included four deployments as a trauma surgeon. And uh, prior to being recruited to the clinic, he was Division Chief of Colorectal Surgery at the University Hospital in Cleveland. And he also served as Associate Program Director of the General Surgery Residency at Madigan Army Medical Center. Uh, he has recently co-authored several clinical practice guidelines published by the American Society of Colorectal Surgeons, uh, which describe management of a lot of the various conditions we're going to be discussing today. So we're very excited to have him. Welcome, Dr. Steele. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a privilege. Thanks for joining us, and thank you for your service, sir. Let's start by defining the scope of what defines anorectal emergency disease conditions that encompass things that should really get us excited to, you know, walk down and see the patient in an expeditious fashion or, you know, for our colleagues in the community to drive in and see a patient for prompt intervention? You know, that's a great question, and I, I listened to your lead-in, and one of the things that I was thinking about when I got asked that question previously, I actually got asked to give a very similar talk at uh, one of the national meetings a couple of years ago. And when I was putting the talk together, I was thinking to myself, what is a true anal rectal emergency? And as you said, there's anything from, hey, listen, my butt hurts really, really bad, and I need you to do something about this, that patient, to the septic patient that you see in the ICU that's oftentimes morbidly obese. They're a diabetic. It started out with a simple pimple, and what you think is going on then turns to be something as, you know, profound as, bad fornies, gangrene. So that spectrum of type disease with the anorectal emergencies really kind of goes back to your definition of what emergency is. We all know that if you're the patient that has a thrombose external hemorrhoid and it's acute and it just happened, that can be something that is the most problematic and severe pain ever that you think your world is dying to somebody with just 72 hours later with the exact same condition might be in a much better place where they don't think of themselves as as much as an emergency department anymore, and you might not even operate on that person. We know that particular other situations like butt pus themselves are things that the anorectal abscesses are a little bit more on the emergency side, that they need to be uh, lanced in the appropriate setting, and um, they're not unlike kids where you can aspirate and give antibiotics to, that these are things that should be taken care of, but if they rupture in and of themselves and get called by the emergency department with a fistula, well, that's not an emergency anymore. So the unique thing about the anorectal conditions is that really, even in and of themselves, not only is there a wide spectrum of disease that could constitute an emergency, but it's also in the actual conditions in themselves where they lie along the timeline and the spectrum may determine what the acute care surgeon has to do, if anything, especially in the beginning of the night or beginning of the day or the middle of the night. So you mentioned... Uh butt bus, if you will, or interrectal abscess, perianal abscesses. Uh, oftentimes we get called the emergency center, and the workup has already included a diagnostic imaging of some sort, you know, most notably CAT scan. Is that part of the workup 
to perhaps rely on superlevator component, or is uh, history and physical sufficient to formalize a treatment plan? Yeah, that's a great question again. And what I would tell you is that if you take a step back from anorectal abscesses, when I talk with residents and fellows, one of the things I always say is that to understand anorectal pathology, you really have to understand anorectal anatomy. So as we all know that 80% of all anorectal abscesses are cryptoglandular in nature, the glands get blocked, they uh, they form a boil, for lack of a better word, and that boil can occur at the different spaces. And remember that abscesses, for the kind of the residents that are listening to the trauma cast, uh, the abscesses occur in the spaces, and the sphincters are named as their relation to the sphincter. That's why fistulas are transsphincteric, intersphincteric, suprasphincteric, and extrasphincteric. Whereas abscesses are things like perianal, intersphincteric, ischioanal, or ischiorectal, and then the supplevator one, and then the one that we're all a little bit more concerned about, the horseshoe abscess that lies in the deep postanal space. Now, if you take a look at those abscesses, again, in the spaces, if you get a perianal abscess or an ischiorectal abscess, those are the ones that you can see. You do a simple history and physical examination. All you got to do is guy comes in, they have uh, a large amount of pain, they're feeling a little feverish, maybe their white cones out, they can press and point to the area it is, you, spread their buttocks or you look at the anorectal examiner, you look at their buttocks themselves and you can see that big red fluctuant area that's kind of just looking like a pimple that needs to be burst. You don't need any imaging for those patients. And so to have a standard component of imaging, probably imaging like most things in every institution out there, you walk through an emergency department, you're getting some sort of CAT scan, it's not needed in this case. You drain the butt pus and you go from there. And there's some subtleties to how you drain certain amount of these or to talk to people, which I can talk a little bit about in a second, uh, that would make it a little bit better. But the superlevator component is one where it really doesn't affect, uh, it doesn't really present like that. In most patients, what they experience with a superlevator abscess is much more of a deep-seated rectal pain. So those are the patients that they don't look good. They look sick. And you're looking at their buttocks and everything looks normal. So kind of a um kind of a uh, what I like to tell when I'm giving lectures this is you know, this is a a gold nugget that when you think about and hear about patients who have anorectal disease before you ever look there you should have a good idea what's going on young healthy person has in, having mostly pain with bowel movements they wipe and they got blood on the toilet paper you should be looking for a fissure if you don't see a fissure you wouldn't want to know what's going on so somebody that's looking like they're a little bit sick, a little bit feverish, maybe their white count's up or maybe you haven't even checked the lab yet, they complain of a deep-seated rectal pain or they complain of a buttock pain, and you look down there and you don't see an abscess, and you question and probe a little bit more, and you say, is that is that pain deeper? Is it higher up? Or is it right down your bottom? What are you talking about? The two abscesses that can lurk and hide that you may not see just on gross examination is the intersphincteric abscess, the one that occurs in between the internal and external sphincter that you can feel oftentimes fluctuants on digital examination, or the supralevator abscess. And that's why I think that the uh, the CAT scan really goes a long ways. A simple CAT scan, oftentimes you just need of the pelvis only. You don't need contrast, just simple IV contrast. They don't need to be drinking forever. And you can really get a, a really nice appearance of where that is. And in many cases, especially with a horseshoe, abscess that goes around, that'll give you uh, kind of a window into what you're going to be dealing with and when you should make your, or where you should make your incisions. That's when imaging is helpful in that situation. So, Scott, maybe we can start with some of the tips you had mentioned about a basic simple abscess. So, it's visual uh, and physical exam, young and healthy, mild white count, low fever, and you're going to lance it, and you think it's appropriate to do in the emergency room. Well, maybe we can touch on that. When is it appropriate to do in the emergency room? When should you go to the OR? And if you are going to do it in the emergency room, can you give us some tips of how to make it as comfortable as possible for the patient? Yeah, absolutely. I think that one of the most important things that we often don't do but we think about is first when you're counseling that patient in terms of saying, here's what you have and here's what I'm going to do. I always like to take it to the next step and say, hey, listen, what you have here is you have a anorectal abscess, and uh, in about a third of the time, these anorectal abscesses, they'll go away in the beginning. You'll feel better once I lance this thing. But what you notice is that it may come back, and it may actually sprout back as an abscess, or it may kind of come back in the exact same spot that I lanced it, and it will continue to drain and continue to form and resolve and burst and do this pattern. And, you know, so that's called a fistula. 
the reason that I bring that up is, first and foremost, is that we know that about a third of these patients can have a recurrent abscess or can develop a fistula. And what does the patient think when it comes back again? They think, you screwed up. That doctor mm-hmm. screwed up. If that doctor wouldn't have done that versus, you know, you didn't do anything wrong. You did a good thing. But it kind of manages their expectations and sets them up, most importantly, not just for medical regal, that, that they come back to you and they say, hey, listen, uh, you know that doc, that thing that you were talking, I don't remember what it was, fistula or whatever the thing is, that that's here. And so they know to come back to you because that's something that you have to deal with. It's important to also remember that if you keep those same numbers in mind, that if it does come back, you've got to say to yourself, what's going to put me in the best position to succeed in terms of if I have to eventually deal with a fistula? So one of the kind of the key steps is, is that uh, we talk about having as short of tract as possible. So that if you're going to drain an abscess and some of these abscesses that are just pinpoints, you train it over the point of maximal fluctuance. But if it's a large abscess that in some cases can, can encompass a large portion of the perineum or the buttock themselves, you want to drain it as close to the rectum as possible because you want that to be a shorter tract if it's official that you have to deal with. And they talk about a cruciate type incision. They also talk about sticking your finger in there and breaking up all the loculations. They talk about packing and what you really see, you'll read this in a thousand textbooks, but you'll also see many papers that suggest that none of those matter, that you should pack only for the fact that you get a little bit of hemostasis at first. But if you open it accordingly, then and not just make the little stab incision that oftentimes maybe some of the emergency department docs will do because they're not trained appropriately, um, that, you know, that skin may close and it can reform right away. But if you make a nice size incision, that's not meaning that you need to gash open a person's buttocks. But if you make a good-sized incision and just get it drained adequately, that will be enough. And then you can pack it just to kind of keep that hemostasis and maybe for a day or two and then allow it to resolve on its own. Regarding the ability to when do you drain in the emergency department and when don't you, I think that when you have patients that have any question of a horseshoe abscess or have any question for sure of Crohn's disease or something where you feel like, I need to get a better look at this area, those are the ones that need to go to the the OR for a, an evaluation because you really have a hard time in any emergency department. The scopes aren't that good. The lighting is very poor. You can't get the patient as um, comfortable as need be. Those are the ones that just getting an evaluation in the emergency department aren't great, and you should take them for an EUA. For sure, those perianal abscesses that are just good, probably the first thing that you know you need to do is you need to have the ability to, first and foremost, do the job that you're going to do. And if you can't adequately drain it in the emergency department, you need to go from there. And that could be because the patient isn't comfortable. Oftentimes, this is with kids or with people that you're just like, I'm not going to get a good one. They talk about adding sodium bicarb, but the reality of the situation is, is that even if you add that to your local, that oftentimes isn't as good um, to be able to take it down. Now, you can do a good anal rectal block. And that anal rectal block will relax some of the sphincter and allow you to have a little bit of more of uh, an ability to allow that spasm to go away, and that may help. And remember, an anal, a true anal rectal block it encompasses two things. You feel for the ischial tuberosities. That's where the nerves are kind of coming through. And you'll do a fan-like one, and whether you use, you know, um, you know longer-acting like a marcaine or bupivacaine, something like that, versus the shorter-acting lidocaine one. You block there, and then you go right around the anus themselves, and then typically a clockwise manner to do a true anal rectal block. That'll hopefully be able to numb up a little bit more of the area in addition to numbing over where the abscess is. That might help out a little bit. But, again, patients, what hurts a lot of time more than anything else is that block that you're doing and that ability to get poked a lot. But to get a really good examination, if you're worried about that, um, and you have to find yourself because the emergency, something else has happened in OR, that's probably your trick that you want to be able to do. The other aspect that of what I would tell you is that in addition to kind of being as close to the rectum or as close to the anal opening as possible or as the ability to um, try to avoid a longer-acting fistula is make sure that in situations where, you know, where you would suspect that you have a horseshoe abscess, couple of key points is the old textbooks that you will see, you will see pictures where they kind of did a horseshoe fillet and just basically open the anus all the way up. And that's not really what you need to do or you want to do. You have to think about it going back to that, what I talked about a little bit before in terms of the anatomy. 
So the deep postanal space is this is the point where you get a horseshoe abscess. And think about the deep postanal space is that area between the anal coccygeal ligament and the levators. So the levators above the levators is where a supralevator abscess happens. Below the levators in that space is where a horseshoe abscess occurs. And so really the easiest way to enter that and to be able to do that is to put the patient in the operating room. And then I like to do most things in a prone position anorectally, but in many cases, that deep postanal space is much easier accessed by a lithotomy position where you're looking right down on the posterior midline. And for big horseshoe abscesses and deep postanal space abscesses, you can put, do a digital examination and feel at the dentate line that there's an opening at the crypt because that's where a lot of this starts. And you want to accomplish two things during this point. You want to accomplish it having drainage, and you can do that with counter incisions laterally on each side or with a hemi horseshoe on one side over the point of maxillal fluctuance, and then you want to destroy that crypt. So what I do is I oftentimes will put a Kelly clamp in that crypt and kind of just spread it and open that air up to get more drainage. And then depending on what you have and what the patient that you're seeing and the degree of what they have and how you feel that you can have an ability to drain that, you may want to put a Penrose drain through there or put a Seton through there to basically temporize the situation. But that's kind of a tip that you want to do. Lithotomy position, destroy the crypt on the inside, and then drain on the outside. And that's something that you want to do in the operating room. You touched on a little bit that the third of these patients go on to have fistula and anal down the road, and about 30 to 70%, depending on what series we read, have concomitant fistulas. Is that something you recommend looking for at the time of the initial drainage, or would you actually wait for the inflammatory response to subside and then bring them back to do an examiner anesthesia? Yeah, so there was a big paper on this, and I think it was also a Cochrane interview on this not too long ago that took a look at concomitant fistulotomy in the setting of anorectal abscesses versus just drain the abscess and see what occurs. In my personal opinion, I think that especially if you don't do a whole lot of anorectal disease, you're never wrong just to drain the abscess and see what comes up. I don't make it a point to look for a fistula. I think the point on when I really am looking for fistulas, again, if I get a straightforward abscess, and it's one single abscess or even a horseshoe abscess, I'm going to drain that abscess and see what happens. The point where I really think that it's important for anybody to start looking for fistulas, and then more importantly how you deal with those, is in a patient who has perianal Crohn's disease. So you know you have a Crohn's patient. You get called uh, by the emergency department, hey, this guy's butt looks pretty bad. He's got all these openings, and, you know, they can't tell if he's got Crohn's or hydradenitis, and you're just looking at him like, what is going on? That's the person who needs a good EUA, and you need to go back to your basic principles, function and taking care of the problem. So in taking care of the problem, what you want to do is you want to identify any abscesses and you want to drain them. You don't want to get overly aggressive, and you don't want to start dividing sphincter or start doing fistulotomies or stuff like that at the time. And you're much better off, especially in these patients with perianal Crohn's disease who have fistulas, or even those patients who you see a big fistula, who have a large degree of inflammatory response to place a seton. And the seton that I like to use in these positions are not a silk suture or a cutting seton or anything like that that you might read about, but it's something more that no, it's nothing more than just a simple silastic vessel loop that's a draining seton that you can put loosely in the tract. Make sure you get the right internal opening so that you're not making an internal opening and just put a draining seton in and live the fight to fight another day. And if you're somebody that doesn't do a lot of Crohn's disease or somebody who you don't even know this patient has Crohn's, but it looks a little bit funky, then get them to somebody who does a lot of this, and the patient will be much better off. So the key is, again, function. We're not going to divide a lot of sphincter in the setting, if, if any at all. We're just going to put that draining seton in, and then taking care of the problem, drain the pus that's staring you at the face. Do you have any tips for this happened to us actually the other night? You're trying to pass a lacrimal probe or mosquito through the secondary external opening. And, you know, the good solves rule that we're all taught in residency, just in my experience, seems to be a little bit generally more accurate in anterior, you know, radial tracts, posteriorly not so much. And you try to get to that curvilinear tract and you can't really, or you ingest some peroxide and you can't identify the tract in the, the primary opening. I, I think the risk there is it's creating a false tract. Would you stop at that point? Yeah, you touched on a couple of very good points right there. So a couple of things about fistula. So we all know that, um, you know, you, the standard answer is when can you do a fistulotomy? When can you, when should you put a seton in? And we talk about those things. If it's, you know, anterior in a female, be very cautious about that and, you know, be much more apt to put setons and not do a fistulotomy. 
If it's a male sphincter, we talk about a third of the muscle that you can divide and somebody's got normal continence and do very well versus other people who've got a borderline continence as it begins and be less to do a fishlotomy. Your point is, let's take it uh, let's take it back a step from there. What do you do about the situation where you know you're looking at an external opening to a fistula, but you just can't find that internal opening? One of the things you mentioned is diluted 50-50% hydrogen peroxide with an angiocast. Got your suction right near the external opening so it doesn't drain back into the anus. You inject in that, and you just you don't see it. It's not going anywhere. It's not passing. You do the lacrimal probe. It's not going around to where you feel. You can't necessarily really find the internal opening. Remember, in some of these cases, what you can do is you can use the hook crit probe that comes in every set, and you can kind of go along on the inside portion at the crypts on the inner portion and see if it slides into a hole. It doesn't just kind of grab that inner, that papilla that's kind of sitting up there that's not going to help you out. It's not a true opening in there, and you just can't find it. Hydrogen peroxide is great, but it oftentimes doesn't find it. I find with a lot of experience that I get much better in terms of this is kind of it's not going and you get a feel for that. But if you're getting to the point where you're like, I'm sure that there's an internal opening, but I just can't find it, I think the safest thing for most people to do is, again, live to fight the fight another day. And so what I would do in that situation is I would kind of try to open up the external uh, opening a little bit more so you can get adequate drainage. You know that it's there, and in many cases, remember, you can have something temporarily heal over, or you're just not seeing it, or they got a high blind track that you keep on going into. And so what I'll tell is I will try to open that up and debride it a little bit what I can, maybe put a little curette for a wide track in there and kind of curette that stuff out and open the external opening, and I'll just leave it right there. And I'll tell the patient when they wake up, I'll say, listen, I'm almost positive that you have a fistula. I just couldn't find that. And, and tell them exactly what you just said. I don't want to make a false track because that could give you a bad fistula and something that may not heal adequately. So, you know, if you're continuing to drain and this doesn't heal in, then we're going to have to take you back. And that might be a situation where, depending on the center that you're at, uh, in many cases, I know that, for example, the University of Minnesota where I trained, um, they would have add some hydrogen peroxide under an endorectal ultrasound and try to find the internal opening. I know here at the Cleveland Clinic, a lot of times we'll do an MRI that can be able to delineate that a little bit better. Or you just wait a little bit while longer and you schedule them for another examination or anesthesia in a little while longer, assuming that the patient doesn't get sick or have other issues. And almost assuredly, if there is an internal opening, you're just not seeing it, you'll see it at that secondary evaluation. But your key point that you brought up earlier in the question is the worst thing you could probably do is to make yourself a passage. Or I see people a lot of times, they'll kind of force it through the subcutaneous tissue and everything to the point where they'll get right underneath the mucosa. And it's probably not a good track. And then you're like, oh, look at it, it's right here. It's only a few cell layers and they'll pop through. And you probably didn't um, get in the right track in there, so you want to avoid that. Can we talk about antibiotics? So for an immunocompetent yeah. perianal lampsus that we're going to land in the ER, and kind of walk through immunocompromised patients or the deeper kind of abscesses that are taking us into the OR. What is your uh, plan of attack, Scott, for antibiotics? Yeah, so one of the things that we put when we were making the, the clinical practice guideline is it looked at that same question, and there's some data that would suggest that, that those patients who are immunocompromised for any reason, and especially if they have a large amount of cellulitis, and, you know, you're probably going to see associated with that a white count, that they're – probably the only patients that need antibiotics. But where you have drainage and a straightforward abscess and an immunocompetent patient, they don't need antibiotics. And that's that's your general rule of thumb. Even those patients that are immunocompetent that have a big abscess that maybe has a little bit of surrounding erythema, maybe a little bit of cellulitis, those patients don't need antibiotics. There's no good data that would suggest that they don't. Now, you gotta, you gotta, you know, we are not robots out there. And as you guys know, sometimes you just look at that bum and you're like, man, that guy's got a lot more cellulitis than I would suspect. Giving them, of course, a flagell or maybe ciproflagell, can that help them? We know that flagell in and of itself not only has some anti, you know, uh, some the antibacterial, the bacteriostatic thing that flagell has, but we know that it's got anti-inflammatory effects. And there's good data that would suggest even in hemorrhoids that if you put somebody on flagell, that maybe their pain is going to decrease. So it's got some certain components to it that might help you out in more ways than one. But in general, the, you know, the textbook answer is straightforward abscess in an immunocompetent patient that's adequately drained, you don't need antibiotics. The grayness starts to come in the fact when you have, you know, and I guess on the other end of the spectrum, somebody who's immunocompromised, low white cell count, you should be asking yourself, you know, should I be doing drainage of anything? You know, that's the whole 
That's the whole, do you do anorectal examinations in somebody who's got leukopenia, or just you put those patients on antibiotics alone because technically it's sterile because they can't mount a response. You know, it's your other classic question that you kind of get asked. And, and then I would say there's somewhere in between where you have the morbidly obese person who comes in and they got a large amount of cellulitis, but you're looking at an abscess and maybe they're a diabetic and you just feel, uh, yeah, something's not right about this person. Are you wrong for giving antibiotics? I personally don't think so. But if you looked at our clinical practice guidelines, we would suggest that, you know, that outside of that kind of one extreme, you probably don't need them. But we're all human, and I don't think there's anything, you know, particularly wrong with it. In a, um, you know, diabetic, obese, anyone immunocompromised, how long do you keep them on the antibiotics? Yeah, so I guess, you know, why do we keep anybody on antibiotics and how long? It seems like what's the flavor? I read a paper not too long ago that, yeah, that said eight days. Right, it's football scores. Isn't that great? It is. It's whatever you want. What did you do in residency? What is your mentor that you really liked did? Uh, We say, oh, put them on for a week. Put them on for 10 days. Put them on for 14 days. There was a paper, what was it, two years ago or something like that that came out that said the magical thing was eight. I love that it was an off number. I just thought that was great. So now we went with a touchdown and a two-point conversion. And a two-point conversion. So, um, right. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I don't know. I think that, you know, you got to take a feel and see what are we dealing with. I think the more important thing is, you know, could you give them a week of antibiotics and see if it's somebody that you're really worried about and you're in the middle of the night, what I'll do in those things is I'll drain that person. I'll say, listen, instead of just coming, come back and see me within a week or come back and see me within three, four days or Listen, this really concerns me. I'm going to see you in a couple of days in clinic, or I'm going to have you see just so I can look at your bottom and make sure that this isn't progressing onto something that's more importantly. And then you can make it a gestalt and see kind of what's going on. I think that, you know, we worry about doing that short course of antibiotics for fear of X, Y, and Z in terms of super bacteria, and we didn't really treat it or we have treated it or whatever. And I think that's where the seven, eight, six, ten days, two weeks, whatever goes from. Um, but a week is fine. I would start there. But more importantly, I would bring them back to the office and take another look at their bottom. Let's switch gears a little bit. And say on gross inspection, you know, I was another etiology touched on a little bit earlier is the anal fissure, another etiology of acute, severe, intense perianal pain. In the middle of the night, is that something you would initially manage non-operatively with, you know, topical nitrates, or would you still go with the gold standard of, you know, superior healing with the, the sphincterotomy? So the good news for all the acute care surgeons is very, 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 and almost never is an anal fissure an acute surgical emergency. Never. Somebody comes in, they got a routine fissure. You give them a topical medication, and you and see how they do. Remember, when you're talking about anal fissures in general, the treatment strategy is kind of one of a stepwise approach. On one extreme, what you have is you have the gold standard lateral internal sphincterotomy. It's got the best rate of healing. It'll heal about. 90% of fissures, and it takes about eight weeks to heal it in. On the other end of the extreme, you have other things that talk about whether it's any one of the smooth muscle relaxants. I don't care if it's nifedipine or diltiazem or nitrates, and there's pluses and minuses of each of them. And in general, it is essentially 50% of those patients will heal at eight weeks. Remember, it, that's the chapstick to the anus. So what I like to tell my patients is that, you know, you having a you having uh, a crack in there. Let me, I grew up in northern Wisconsin, Menach, Wisconsin, go Badgers, go Packers. Um, you have the ability, now go Browns. Uh, you have the ability to uh, have, you know, you put that chapstick on in, in the winter if you have a cracked lip, and every time you smile, that crack opens up and it hurts, and that chapstick you put on the point where the lip can heal. Whatever you decide that is your kind of your topical treatment of choice, whether it be any one of the smooth muscle relaxants, and there's a lot of different things out there that talk about them. The important point is to know is that the body needs to be able to heal that. So we work on the stools, and we work on something to relax the muscle if it's one of the standard anorectal fissures that are from a hypertonic sphincter. And that takes a while. It takes a while to get to be able to heal. So there's nothing wrong if you get called by the emergency department or somewhere and they're like, I've got a guy acutely painful. He's really, really tender. He's got an anal fissure. I'm staring at the anal fissure. Can you come down and see him? Put the guy in nifedipine. Put the guy on nitrates. Put the guy on diltiazem and have him come and follow him. The important point is when you see them is it's to kind of guide them through that and say, so who don't you do a lateral internal sphincterotomy on? Well, first of all, Everybody has their own um, kind of methodology dealing with. Some of the more gray-haired people will say, we underutilize lateral internal sphincterotomies. We should use them more. The rates of incontinence that are quoted as 10% or 20% deflatus, and they get better with time, 
those are too high, and so they'll do a lateral internal sphincter on the knee on anybody. On the other end, extreme, I know that there's even some colorectal surgeons that are like, dude, I don't ever do a lateral internal sphincter on me. I try to treat all those patients conservatively that are scared to divide the sphincter. It's the holy grail, the sacred cow, whatever you want to call it, of the, of the GI tract that they don't want to unnecessarily uh, divide that if they don't have to. I follow a little bit somewhere in between. I like to use the topical medications, go from there. And what I teach my fellows and my residents is the fact that you want to take a look and say, who wouldn't you divide? Well, we all know that Patients that you got to be wary of are Crohn's patients, right? Because they're prone to diarrhea, they're prone to fistulas, they're prone to a lot of things that may need on there. So you got to really, really ask yourself again and again, why am I dividing the sphincter? And am I really dealing with a true hypertonic sphincter? Am I dealing with a process that's associated with Crohn's that needed to be treated with the inflammatory and the anti-Crohn's medications? So that's first and foremost. I think that women who have anterior fissures, those are ones that, again, that you worry about doing a uh, lateral internal sphincterotomy on because we know that, you know, if you're having a vaginal birth, there's a chance that you're going to have, you know, in some of the series, a one-third chance that you're going to have a occult damage to the sphincter, so you don't want to add to that so that the incontinence or those problems can occur later on in life. I think that those patients who have a baseline incontinence are certainly people that you want to obviously really avoid a lateral internal sphincterotomy on. And so when you, you kind of start looking at those patients, in, again, who don't have a hypertonic sphincter, you wouldn't divide that. So we know that a low-pressure fissure can be just as painful and just as often present with having uh, problems with it, but that's a whole different process. And those are people that might even need to have a sliding flap anaplasty, again, something that is purely elective, and purely something that you would never deal with and you know on an acute basis. So in general rule of thumb is if you're getting called on somebody like this and they're sure it's that and, and nothing else, it's an anal fissure, the best way to go is a topical medication. And depending on uh where you're at, that could be DILT, it could be nifedipine, it could be nitrates. Completing the uh, trifecta of acute perianal pain. You mentioned in the opening thrombosis external hemorrhoids. Another phone call we often get is the, the prolapse, irreducible you know, grade three or four internal hemorrhoids. And, you know, the thrombus external hemorrhoid, which, you know, can be a severe, debilitating, and often, you know, frankly, embarrassing for the patient. That's one issue. And then oftentimes even, which, you know, I, I tend to be skeptical when I get a phone call about the male patient with a rectal prolapse, which, uh, you know, much more prevalent in females, about six to one ratio, as mentioned in the guidelines. But oftentimes it's actually prolapse, you know, large grade three or four hemorrhoids. So what are your thoughts on emergent management of hemorrhoids and maybe a couple of tips uh, making a distinction on physical exam prolapse hemorrhoids versus rectal prolapse. So if you look at most textbooks or most guidelines, just the first question is how do you distinguish between thrombus external hemorrhoids versus rectal prolapse? And it can actually be confusing if you don't look at a lot of that. And then it's, it's almost like once you get used to seeing it, you're like, it's pretty obvious that this is what I'm dealing with is, is true prolapse. Remember, Prolapse, you see the circumferential folds of the rectum coming at you, out at you like a telescope. Now, on on issues where it's just rectal prolapse and it doesn't, it's not strangulated or it's not incarcerated or anything like that, the best thing to do is just to push it back in. And they talk about people who have chronic rectal prolapse, but every time the person stands up, it just comes right back out at you. And so what do you do? Well, I mean, there's things that you can do. You can have, uh, you know, what I'll, I've even had patients that just, they couldn't, you know, they were at a small hospital. They couldn't get in to see me, and I just say, you know what, roll up a, a water gauze and just kind of put it by the rectum. You don't don't put it in the rectum, but put it by the rectum and have them wear, you know, a pair of tight underwear, and it'll work almost as a plug to prevent it from coming out. There's nothing wrong with that. An incarcerated rectal prolapse that you're sure is rectal prolapse, it's coming out at you like it's uh, a bullseye coming all out, and it's truly, you know, either strangulated or incarcerated where, like, this is a problem. Obviously, if it's dead and it truly is strangulated, that's a surgical emergency. And if you're not used to the, the textbook answer is from below, in that situation, you would do an emergent, what we call a perineal rectal sigmoidectomy, which is otherwise known as an Altmeyer. If you don't do a lot of those, that's not the time to start. That's, that's the time to get to somebody who, who does that and just, and just take care of it. For those patients that are just incarcerated and they're not strangulated and they're just a demodus, that's where you'll read about things that they, we take from the veterinary literature and, you know, pouring sugar on it to kind of try to use that osmotic properties of sugar to get away that edema. 
Another thing that will oftentimes work is just doing a good anal rectal block because oftentimes when the rectum comes out and it stays out and it's acute and that's somebody who has that kind of chronic prolapsing out, um, the sphincter goes into spasm. So you're trying to push back in against the sphincter and that's in a spasm and you're having all sorts of problems. And so by doing an anal rectal block, it can decrease the spasm of the sphincter. You can get out some of that edema. And then once you get that back and reduced, oftentimes that edema will get much better and the patients will do just fine and they'll feel better. So rectal prolapse comes out at you like a telescope. You see the circumferential rings around uh, the rectum. Emergency is if it's truly dead, i.e. strangulated, it's black. Textbook answer, perineal rectosigmoidectomy, a.k.a. Altmeyer. Incarcerated, get the edema out. Whatever way you can, get it back in and you can deal with it. Very rarely is just an edematous rectal prolapse, a surgical emergency. On the other hand, when you're dealing with thrombosagmoids, this is spokes on a wheel, so you don't see. When they strain, you kind of see the, it coming out, and I know that the textbooks will say right anterior, right posterior, and left lateral as the three columns, but in some cases you'll see, God, I just got a bunch of things coming at, out at you, and where are these three columns that I'm supposed to read? And sometimes there's four or more, and you're just looking at and it looks like a cluster of grapes that is coming out at you. So it's not those beautiful circumferential rings of the rectum coming out. It's it's literally, um, as my daughter would say, you know, it's the baboon butt. That, you know, you go to the zoo and you see that that, that characteristic baboon that's kind of got the, the anus and the rectum that's out. And when they're real bad, like you talked about, those are the ones that are kind of really coming out at you. And you can look like a cluster of grapes all around. Now, that's a condition when they're really out and they're really thrombosed and that demitus and problematic. That's, that is something that you want to deal with at the time. We call that hemorrhoidal crisis. That's somebody you want to take to the operating room. You want to put to sleep. You want to give a very nice anorectal block on. And the key in these situations is if you're the guy or the girl that is doing this operation, what you want to do is you want to make sure that you don't take too much anoderm. Remember, the anoderm is that area between the dentate line and the anal verge, and everything's swollen. And you know you're going to get swelling. It's not the time to do a perfect hemorrhoidectomy. It's the time to get out and remove much of that clot as possible. You don't have to take a lot of anoderm because you, the worst thing in the world you can do is be overly aggressive and leave the patient with anal stenosis. So what I when I do these cases and, again, in, in showing people how to do them, the thing that I always try to teach them up front is start with the largest one first. And what you'll often find by starting with the external component, take the time to dissect the hemorrhoid, oftentimes now with clots, off of the sphincter muscles, and just do one. And what you often find is after you take out one, things look a heck of a lot better. And oftentimes you don't need to do a full three-column hemorrhoidectomy, but if you feel that you do, always go back to the anoderm as much as possible. And remember, I want at least a centimeter of anoderm left in between each of my incisions, at least a centimeter. And if, again, you don't do a lot of these anorectal cases and you certainly don't feel comfortable with doing a hemorrhoidal crisis, then less is more, and there's nothing wrong with getting to somebody who does a little bit more of these. The worst thing you can do is oftentimes we'll see emergency department. I always made a point uh, when I was at Madigan to go down and talk to the emergency department residents and give them a good talk on how you deal with thrombos hemorrhoids because oftentimes what do they do? And I don't know what they do in your institution, but a lot of times what ER docs are trained to do is do that, take a 15 blade and stab it and squeeze the clot like you're popping a zit getting ready to go to high school prom. That's not what right. the goal is because in many cases we know that that's not going to take care of it and oftentimes that thrombos will then find itself not only there, but it'll kind of expand around the rest of the anus. So you really want to do a true excision. If you read in the textbooks, you'll see that it says, if the patient presents with less than 72 hours, do an excisional hemorrhoidectomy and a single thrombos hemorrhoid. And if they present after 72 hours, you shouldn't do that. Well, an interesting story around that, uh, Stan Goldberg was my mentor at University of Minnesota when I was training, and he wrote one of the original textbooks on this. And he tells a story about how the graph that has been perpetuated in many different textbooks, he basically was on a napkin. David Rothenberger, who was the chairman at University of Minnesota just most recently, came walking in and Stan said to him, hey, David, what do you think about how much time before people come in when they got a thrombus hemorrhoid? Is it really bad and we should, you know, do something? And they kind of just drew out this graph on the lack of a back of a napkin that kind of marked it at three days, and that has just been found its way into surgical dogma and lore over time. 
and I'm sure there's a little bit something more to that too that you'll find in some other textbooks. The reality of the situation, there's no hard and fast rule about 72 hours. It is a great guideline. But what I try to go to is I try to go to patients and see how you doing. Are you feel, what, what are you on that curve of feeling better? Because you'll know that some patients come in, it's been two weeks, and, you know, the area is still firm. Don't expect to be soft, but it's a little softer than being there. And so those I'll just leave alone. Conversely, they can come in in four days and they're miserable and they can't move and they got this hemorrhoid and still edematous and it's past that 72 hours. And you numb them up and you do an excisional hemorrhoidectomy, removing that clot. All I do it, oftentimes I'll do it with a simple anorectal block, and I like to use an iris scissors. I think an iris scissors are a wonderful thing to do. It forces you not to stab. It forces you to cut underneath that clot and really kind of dissect that clot away from the underlying sphincter. And in many cases, you don't even close the wound, and you can just get that clot out, and you have very little bleeding, maybe a stitch, just one in. And, you know, regarding do you like to leave it open, do you like to close it, that's dealer's choice. Um, but essentially, an iris scissors and a pickup is all you need. So for those patients who might even come in earlier than 72 hours with a thrombotemorrhoid, if they're doing just fine and they're like, God, I'm just a little bit worried about this. This popped up last night when I was constipated, and they're doing just fine and it's not that bad. Again, you don't need to necessarily remove that. But in general, they don't present like that and within 72 hours, and that's kind of where I think that comes into play. But don't go by as much as the time. Go by the patient's symptoms and remember. This is not the time to do a stab avulsion in a squeeze. It's the time to do an excision of the clot. That's a great point. Yeah, I mean, we were always taught you know, go down the, almost at the junction of normal perianal skin without being too overzealous, obviously, intake muscle. But the, the cluster of grapes patient that you mentioned, a lot of people have moved to using, you know, some energy device of some variety and not do a traditional uh, you know, old-school Ferguson hemorrhoidectomy. Is that something that's been shown in literature to be superior or less uh, post-op hemorrhage or pain? Energy devices have been looked at in terms of the elective hemorrhoidectomy. Uh, I'm not aware of a series in terms of the acute hemorrhoidal crisis, um, although there might be one out there. But I know that uh, so both the ultrasonic devices and the ligature and the end-seal device, all those advanced bipolar energy devices have been looked at, and basically they've been shown to be associated with um, decreased pain. What, what I the, My takeaway with that is is that does the pain justify the cost? As we all know that a handset itself is, you know, four or $500, depending on what contract that you're in. And I, I personally, I, I don't, I, you know, I used it for a while. I think they're great. I, so they're certainly a heck of a lot easier to do. My concern, especially in the training environment, is, is that I think that a lot of people that use the energy devices, they don't, they just kind of set it on there and divide and hope they don't get to the sphincter. Uh, unless you're, you know, I do think that even if you use an energy device, it's important that you see that sphincter, make sure you don't take some of the muscle that you could easily take with them. There's no question it's a beautiful way to do it because it doesn't bleed much with the energy devices and it's very fast. But my concern always is first and foremost that you know that the operation should remain the same. It's just a different approach and a different methodology to get you there. So whether you use electric cautery or bovies or leave it open or stitch it shut, you still want to do the basics. I'm going to remove the hemorrhoidal tissue. I'm going to leave the good sphincter behind. And then I'm going to make sure that I leave enough anoderm behind so that I don't cause an anal stenosis. That's great. Let's um, switch gears again and cross over to the trauma arena uh, as we're wrapping up here. Since we're slaughtering a lot of sacred cows, there's a multi-center WSD uh, paper that just came out. This one's additional internal trauma, and these guidelines still supports for extracranial rectal injuries to just basically divert. So the historically, the 4Ds of direct repair and pre-sacral drainage, just the rectal washout and diversion. The first three really have sort of fallen by the wayside. Are there any patients that, you know, maybe large perianal injury that disrupts the anal sphincter that where pre-sacral drainage might still be utilized? Yeah, so when you look at, you know, colorectal trauma, that's a whole different talk. We'll focus on just the anus itself and talk a little bit about extra peritoneal. You know, when you look at that, the issue with a lot of this is exactly when I was taking my boards and, and doing all that, you know, it was easy. If I got, if I got a patient like this, they're going to get the 4Ds that you just described. The problem is, is that most of the literature that talks about that is based on class three data. It is Patients that reported retrospective reviews as of this is what I had and this is what we did. And when you further go into the data and you go into the different series, what you found out more than anything is that it was a mix and match of those four, four Ds. Somebody drained, somebody diverted, 
somebody did a direct repair, somebody did a, a distal rectal washout. In general, most of the series for extraperitoneal rectal injuries got a diversion plus something else. And so still, whereas in colon trauma, when you especially talk about the Demetriotis study out of USC with the 19 institutions and all the different ones that came out several years ago, talking about diversion versus primary repair in, in colon trauma in the move and a lot of the randomized studies that have been out there talk about just doing a primary repair and maybe avoidance of diversion in rectal trauma and especially inter- extraperitoneal rectal trauma, diversion still plays a very large role. So you have to say to yourself, what exactly am I dealing with? And if we just walk ourselves through the four Ds in um, extraperitoneal trauma and just assume that what you said before is that diversion is the one that plays the primary role, what about the other three Ds? Well, definitely direct repair would depend on what you're dealing with. And what I would tell you is that you can certainly say to yourself, where don't you want to be in extraperitoneal trauma? You don't want to find yourself in an unstable patient trying to do a difficult rectal dissection to dis and to dissect your way down to an area that you're going to repair. It's best to leave it alone, stay out of dodge, and divert that patient, and again, see how they do. And if there's any other problems, go back at a later on time once they're more stabilized, but you don't want to be in the operating room. So direct repair isn't a great thing to basically do unless it's up in your face. And the question often then comes in time is saying, well, what should I do about the sphincter defect? So I get called by OB-GYN, or I get called by somebody who uh, had a motorcycle accident or an impalement type injury and the sphincter's weighing in the breeze. I think if you're not accustomed to dealing with a sphincter, leave the sphincter alone. Because what you're going to find is more than anything, you should wash that area out. If you have grossly necrotic type sphincter, that's probably important to debride like you debride any other thing that's dead. And then in many cases, you're going to want to wait and see what the scar looks like. Now, this is different than if you're called and you're used to dealing with the sphincters and you've got a, a trauma birth tear um, that's otherwise clean and it's a you know young, otherwise healthy patient and you can see the tear in the sphincter, there's nothing wrong with repairing that rate that time if you, if you feel comfortable in doing that. I'm talking about the impalement injury when somebody's coming in and you, you, everything looks like ground meat and you're trying to put, you know, flatus to moonbeams. Not the time. Wash that patient out determine if they need a diversion. In many cases, especially with those patients, they may not even need a diversion that night. Wait a little bit. See what it is. You can take them for a diversion in the next day when they're more stabilized and go from there. But you really want to be able to say to yourself, I want to wash that area out. I want to make sure it's clean, and I want to just kind of get a good assessment of it. The, so that's the direct repair. The distal rectal washout has two different thought processes. Some people say that, God, I don't want to, I know I'm going to divert them, but I don't want to leave all that column still in there. And so I just want to kind of get it out. And, you know, so you can, if you're, if you fall into that camp to put a large rigid proctoscope in, and I'm not talking about a full colonic washout with the anesthesia tubing, all that, all in many cases you need, especially for a distorector washout and somebody that you diverted is to, you know, just put a proct- operating proctoscope in and you can either irrigate from below or if you got a, it's got a hole in it from above, you can, do an anagrade with the proctoscope in that's opening the sphincters to facilitate that. The other camp would suggest that you don't want to force stool into naive tissues that otherwise it wouldn't go into through that distal rectal washout. I, I, I personally feel like if it's easy and you can, can kind of pluck some of the stool out of there, that's great, but you don't necessarily have to, and I wouldn't go to any extra men's debates to, to do that, especially when you're going to divert those patients. But if it's sitting right there, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. And certainly if you've got a proctoscope that's a large board, to put it through the anus and just kind of irrigate a little bit, might be able to get that stools out. Drainage, I think the one time that drainage is maybe useful is if you get, if you have somebody, especially what we saw in combat, where you have a lot of these very large blast injuries where the whole, you know, the whole perineum is kind of blown out or you may have a sacral injury, it may have just kind of blasted away in the back, almost like you've opened up all of those planes to leave a pelvic drain for a day or two to get that kind of that that initial, you know, blood and mixed in with stool, mixed in with other things on there, but definitely that to open up and do the old-fashioned pre-sacral drains from below to kind of get up there is certainly not as advantageous as what really thoughts, especially when you just divert them alone. So in summary, divert, yes. The other three, probably not as much needed outside of a few indications. And for the perineal injury, Somebody who you got to take a look at the sphincters. If it's a young, healthy OB patient that it's sitting right there and you feel comfortable doing it, doing it. If it's just a bunch of debris and muck and it looks like, you know, kind of a dog chewed on it or for those impalement injuries, wash the area out, debris what's gross and necrotic, and just stop right there.
great. Yeah, I remember seeing a picture in front of surgery with ventilator tubing to just to wrap the wash yeah. out. Well, yep. Shout out to Dr. Beakley and Matt Martin there. So do you, do you do a, a traditional sigmoid loop for diversion? Yeah, that's a great question. Again, you're asking tough questions. So what, what's a, you know, how do you do it? And I, I go back to saying, so what's the worst um, colostomy that you get given? Uh, by far, that's a transverse loop colostomy. Those are, those are difficult. The stool is still very liquidy. It prolapses like crazy. Patients right. don't really like them. And outside of a very few indications, I will try not to do a transverse colostomy at all. A loop colostomy is nice uh, because of the fact that Again, oftentimes the sigmoid colon is redundant. You can get good access to the anterior abdominal wall. By and large, it's a pretty good diverter. Not not always. No loop is 100% diversion, and uh, and it's not too bad. The thing that you want to take a look and just take a step back at certain times and realize that's a good, that's a good thing to be able to do. But you want to consider in the future in terms of saying. What am I diverting for? So if you have somebody that's got like a blast injury, a shotgun wound, or something like that, do you want, is it going to be something that you're going to eventually need to do a proctectomy on, that you're going to need to do a pull through and pull down, and if you use the sigmoid colon, is that going to essentially give you length issues that you wouldn't before? Probably shouldn't, because most of us would try to take out the sigmoid anyway in a pull through and use the descending colon, because the sigmoid's not great, so it shouldn't be a problem. So that would probably be the preferred thing to basically use. But then ask yourself, if you have somebody who's got a, a large amount of problems and you want a loop, uh, make sure that it's not something that you're really worried about that's going to have some distal flow to the stool and in that loop. And what you can do in that, a nice tip and trick to do is to bring up a loop, which you can take a GIA stapler and rotate it down towards the patient's feet and just staple that distal end in kind of an end loop, and then just mature. You can tuck that right in the subcutaneous tissue and mature the end. So you get all the advantages of a takedown if it's something that you're just going to maybe that you won't have to, that you can just close in and of itself sitting right there. And that's an end loop colostomy or a pseudo loop, some people call it. Other people would call it, um, you know, various different names out there. I'm mind blanking the, the person at the University of Chicago, yeah, Prasad. Yeah, Prasad yeah. loop um, out there. And, and and that's a nice thing because, again, both ends are still there. If you want to put them right back together through something that's a little bit easier, but it avoids having spillage and to be able to go downstream. So you can also use that trick as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen people, you know, use a TA even to, you know, staple off, staple and not divide that distal limb. Uh, and then mm-hmm. reverse it locally, so all sorts of uh, different ways to skin the same cat. Um, yep. One last thing I'm curious about in terms of rectal trauma, the quite common impacted rectal form body. So these are often, yeah. you know, self-inserted transanally. And I've seen all sorts of creative things from, you know, obstetric uh, forceps to fully catheters. Are there any tricks of the trade for uh, extraction without, you know, avoiding a laparotomy and a, colonomy to remove the object from above. Anything you share with us as far as tricks that you've kind of picked up along the road? Yeah, so I'm going to bore you very quickly with a very quick topic. So I got asked when I was just finishing my fellowship to write a chapter and I wanted to do academic surgery. And so I said, sure. And I'm like, what on? And they said, oh, uh, rectal foreign bodies. I was like, okay. So I wrote a chapter (laughs) on rectal foreign bodies and somebody read that. And I got asked again to write another talk on or write a, another chapter on rectal foreign bodies and so you know i wrote that one too come to be that i asked again on another one to write another rectal foreign body chapter and this time i got kind of bored so i looked up in the literature and i wrote down this one chapter of everything that i could find in the literature that has been ever taken out of reported been out of somebody's anus and so i wrote that then up to date came and asked me to write the up to date section on rectal foreign bodies and so I'm giving a talk at the American College of Surgeons, and I'm a few years out of my fellowship now, and somebody came up to me after this and said, you're Scott Steele. And I was like, going all like, yeah. Like, oh, my God, somebody recognized me. And they said, you're the rectal foreign body guy. You're right. And I was like, oh, <laughs> what a thing to be known wonderful. for. <laughs> so, so that's what I'm known for. Great. So I was like, absolutely, I'm the rectal foreign body guy. So you ask, I, I can tell you, I do have a fair amount of experience with rectal foreign bodies, not just taking them out, but also writing about it. Lots of different tricks that I would say, and I think that I would go back to the most important thing. When you see a rectal foreign body, the first thing you have to ask yourself is, 
what's going on with that patient. If that patient's got a large amount of abdominal pain, you want to do a lot of perforation first. So we're going to exclude the patient that has peritonitis and has perforated their sigmoid colon or something like that. That patient goes to the OR and you do the standard things that you would do with any other perforation. So let's just talk about the person that is pseudostable, they got something in their bum, and you're trying to get it out. So that's the patient we're going to focus on. So a couple of things is that if you can find out what it is, and in certain cases that is harder than what you think it should be, you should be able to just ask, do you have something in your bottom, what is it? But as you all know that, uh, you know, patients, it's, it's, it's probably more prevalent than we think. It's associated with a large amount of stigmatism. The important point to also understand is that in many cases, patients have had that foreign body in their rectum for a long time, and they've tried multiple things to get it out. And many times, those things that they've tried can cause more damage than just having the foreign body themselves. So when we look at that trauma literature and we see things like, you should divert if it's greater than 12 hours since they were evaluated, and you're thinking, God, who would come in greater than 12 hours into these thing? Well, the rectal foreign body could. And so... You want to ask, what is it? What have you tried to get it out? And, you know, make sure that they don't have peritonitis. So depending on what it is, it classically falls into one of a couple of things, fruits and vegetables, which, you know, then you're thinking to yourself, you know, this is something that I've got to get a grasp or a clamp on. And that's where your things like, you know, tenaculums and some of the, the Haney clamps and these other things that are at our disposal in the operating room or a, um, a coker are very good for. There's other things that are metal or uh, like plastic-type objects, your standard vibrators, dildos, any one of the number of objects like this that you have to say to yourself, not only do I need to get this out, but I need to make sure that uh, obviously if it's got a battery involved that it all comes out intact and everything, and they're, they're pretty straightforward. Or you get into the glass-type objects or anything that could break and cause secondary damage, the jars, Christmas ornaments, all these other things that we've all had an opportunity to basically take out. And so your kind of your take-home messages on these is that what's keeping that in is probably one of a couple of different things. First and foremost, that the sphincter has gone into spasm, and that's why it's very important to relax the patient. So whether you do this in the emergency department or you do it in the operating room, a good thing to do is give the patient some sedation and do a true anal rectal block. That's step one. Do a true anal rectal block. You're going to divide where the where the nerves are at the issue of tuberosities, and then you're going to do a true anal rectal block around the anus. Then you're going to give them a little versed, or in the operating room, you can give them propofol or whatever, just to relax that patient. It's going to go a long way. If it's something that's large, there's no question that the other thing that can cause them to be a, uh, a problematic is that vacuum effect and the edema that can occur in the rectum that brings it in. And you'll read in the textbooks anything from getting above it with a Foley catheter and inserting some air to a nice thing that I think is much more amenable to getting them out is a flexible sigmoidoscope. You can put in air. You can get a, a wire, uh, an ERCP wire is a wonderful thing to use as a lasso to grab it and bring it out. I've taken uh, many things out with that, and uh, one of my friends even took a billy club out with an ERCP wire would get it out there. And then the last thing that can kind of keep it in if it's not that vacuum effect is essentially the angle where for whatever reason, it's just very difficult to make that corner and that other corner as you go down the sacral promontory. But in some cases, after you get good sedation on them, you can put your hand on the stomach and help milk that down. So what my algorithm is always to go and try to see if I can get out right there and understand that the best way to get something out is oftentimes your hand. For, so for people who are kind of a little bit more uh, prone to putting things in their bottom, oftentimes the sphincter is very patchless. And after you get a little bit of some sedation on effect, you can actually put your hand or put your fingers in there and grab whatever it is and get it out. If it doesn't work after you've done the sedation, do that to go to the operating room. That doesn't necessarily mean you need to do anything other than do the exact same things that you were going to do in the emergency department. But now that they're more sedated and more relaxed, you get a little bit more mobility to get that area out of there. And then the third type of things you're going to go to is essentially, you know, doing laparoscopy or a laparotomy where you can kind of get that on there not yet make a colotomy, but try to milk it down to your other hand or your other object to get it out. And this is, again, assuming that, you know, using the flexible sigmoidoscopy or the wires or uh, a Foley balloon that's up in there. The vacuum that they use in OBE is oftentimes good for, like, a jar, if you can get the back end of a jar and bring that area out. And then, finally, the last thing that you would probably do is do a colotomy and have to bring it backwards in the operating room. So, 
it's a stepwise approach, but there's nothing that's good about re uh, that's better than just making sure the patients are relaxed. And then finally, if you're able to get it out successfully, especially um, if you didn't have to do any sort of a lap rod or anything, make sure that you get that follow-up x-ray, and that's the time to do a follow-up flexible sigmoidoscopy or a proctoscopy after it's out to look at the rectal wall to make sure there's not any, uh, you know, thickness lacerations or something you would want to observe the patient more or if there's something that shows free air. That's probably the important points when you're done. Well, so that was a great discussion. Thank you so much for participating taking the time to join us. It's a pleasure having you. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, really. It's good to go through yeah. it in a systematic way and, and have it in a concise format. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you so much for uh, having me on. I really do appreciate it. And um, thank you guys for also following uh, Behind the Knife. It's really uh, it's been a lot of fun. Definitely, yep. And those guidelines, again, are found at FASCRS.org, FASCRS.org, and packages of uh, DCR, diseases of colon rectum, available on PubMed, really great guidelines with a lot of references. And thanks a lot to our listeners. Looking forward to next time. That wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the educational and career development resources available on the East website www.east.org. Make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any more exciting programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking, and building relationships, career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East. East.